We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. I want to start with a paraphrase of a quote from Thoreau, the American philosopher and naturalist, written over 150 years ago, but that still speaks to people as strongly today. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the songs still in them. I think we can all identify with the image of quiet desperation. On this edition, I'm going to unpack how we reach the place of quiet desperation and more importantly, three ways to find a way out. My witness is the man who paraphrased the quote, Simon Rowe, who originally trained as a body psychotherapist. He's done a lot of work with men on rites of passage, and we'll talk more about what that means later, and with both male perpetrators and victims of domestic abuse. He's also done a foundation course in process-orientated psychology. Welcome, Simon. Good morning, Andrew. So although Thoreau talks about the mass of men leading lives of quiet desperation, I think he speaks to everyone, hence the popularity Mm. of the noughties TV series Desperate Housewives. Mm. How does the phrase quiet desperation speak to you? It just seems to sum up so succinctly a whole range of feelings that I wasn't, 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 wasn't having or experiencing fully. Uh, and the best two, two or three words was quiet desperation. It embodies some kind of reserve, some kind of Englishness and some kind of staidness in some ways. And the desperation really speaks as a counterpoint to that. It's like, I'm quiet and I'm not saying very much. I'm not complaining, but I'm actually quite desperate. If that makes sense. And was there a particular period of your life when quiet desperation particularly spoke to you? I suppose when... Um, yeah, around my mid-30s. I couldn't believe that I was 35. And I was going to be 40 in five years. I, I mean, really, I couldn't believe it. must have been some mistake. And yet I realised I was going to be, th- well, I was 35. I was going to be 40. Time was moving on. I was getting older. Life was getting shorter. And I thought, make it stop. I'm not young anymore. And I'm not old. And what, what, who am I? Where am I? What the hell? Yeah. And so what was going on in your life at that point? Um, I'd hit a kind of a brick wall in terms of my career as a therapist. I'd lost meaning in, in therapy. I, I, where I used to find me, I'd lost meaning. I'd lost faith or meaning in the world. I couldn't understand why the world was as it was, um, partly triggered by, I think, two friends of mine being killed in a car crash. Wow. Who were kind of nice guys. And they were. And my quite young brain was saying, well, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people, surely, but they were good people and bad things happened. What? How does that work? And I, I kind of, yeah, I got very cynical, very bitter, very mistrustful of the universe, of God, of anything like that, of meaning. So I was in a pretty ashes-type place, as Robert Bly might say, a pretty broken place. But again, being very quiet about it, everything's fine. I'm okay, you know. Um, and the second half of the, the quote is that um, these people leading lives of quiet desperation go to the grave with the song still in them. Yeah. How did that speak to you at that particular point? 
I knew, I guess, from the therapeutic work that I've done in the past, from my training as a body psychotherapist, from doing some process work, that there was more to be had. There was more to be had inside of me. There was some gold, despite all the shame, despite all the kind of numbness. And yet the work seemed to be, how can I, how can I give birth to that? How can I, how can I sing that song? Because a big part of the infinite is worth singing. And I think we actually forget that we do have a song in us. Yeah, we're not encouraged to remember, for sure. <laughs> I'm not being cynical, just being realistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is an old myth that we arrive in this world with a mission, or a more poetic way of putting it is a song to sing. But somehow, yeah. the yeah. whole process of arriving in the world makes us forget it. And then we have to actually find what our mission is, yeah. or a sort of a Buddhist way of putting it is that we're born with various seeds of potential, and it's up to us to actually water the right seeds. But whichever way you put it, we sort of forget that we have a song inside ourselves. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think we lose sight of the song? I mean, some traditions might say it's a trauma experience of birth, that we aren't very good at giving birth, we aren't very good at tending the unborn child and consequently arrives in a huge wave of trauma which gets normalized and that trauma involves forgetting where we came from involves forgetting who we really were on a deeper level and the work inverted commas capital letter is to remember to reclaim refine that song unpick what's happened to us and heal the traumas and find the gold find the song inside there And the third part of what Thoreau is saying in his essay in Civil Disobedience and other essays, what is called resignation is confirmed desperation. I'm going to say that again. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. What does Thoreau mean by that, do you think? To my ears, it's almost like abdicating and saying, I can't do this anymore. I really can't do this anymore. Do what you will to me. I can't. I have no agency left. Yeah, and that really is the dark place that people get into with the whole idea of quiet desperation. And you had a sort of another moment where you were sort of burnt out with working with the perpetrators of domestic abuse as well. So tell me about that work and how it burnt you out. I came into that work via a friend, a man I met on a men's group who became a colleague and a great friend. And I told him about the rights of passage work I've been doing. And he said, come into the groups I've been running for men who are are abusive and violent. I had no idea what I was going to encounter. I had some kind of, I I didn't know anything about about domestic abuse, really. Um, I imagined the kind of circle of men kind of going, ah, my friend in the middle with a whip and a chair going, get down, something like that. You know, it's just like, great. I had no idea. What I found when I got into the room, I got invited to sit into the group, was a room full of broken men. But men who were expressing their brokenness or their desperateness in violent and abusive ways. Because that was basically the only way they knew how to do that. That's kind of a big brushstroke and quite simplified. That's, that's, that's the essence. I thought, wow, there's some stuff taking place here, which is quite incredible. For men who would never normally come near a therapeutic uh, uh, a therapy room. They're being asked, told to, you know, get in touch, get involved with themselves, address their behaviour, take responsibility, look inside, all that kind of stuff. And these were guys that I I would quite often literally cross the street to avoid at first impressions. They looked dangerous, men. I mean, not all of them, but they looked dangerous. They were called Big John, they had tattoos, they were rough and ready. And yet, they're human beings, they're men. They're human beings, they had hearts, they were confused, they were frightened they didn't know how to cope with the situation 
they didn't know who the hell I was. So it was rewarding work, but it somehow managed to burn you out. Why do you think that was? Partly after you know nearly 13 years, you can only hear so many sad stories. So many, I could only hear so many traumatic stories. Working within the remit of child protection as well, which we were, there's a big culture of mind your back, watch out for your back, because everyone was kind of waiting for the next um, baby pee to happen, or the next whatever tragedy to happen, and for not to be on their watch. And so we spent a lot of time covering our backs and then safeguarding procedures. And there was an, attitude, uh, an overall, for me, at least I found an overall anxiety in the air. And this, this is back in, in, in the office, um, which gets very corrosive. And it's still the case today. I know, I mean, I speak to social workers who are burning out. They just can't handle it anymore. It's just too much. And burnout and quiet desperation are sort of bedfellows, really, aren't they? Yeah, I'd say burnout is a bit more um, jaggedy. It's a bit quiet desperation for me was a kind of a, a grey blanket. Burnout is like, uh, you, it's very, very uh, jagged for me, it was. And I can think of times when I have had quiet desperation too. I mean, for example, my father died just a few months ago. But actually, the desperation isn't quiet in the sense that I'm speaking up, I'm getting help from a wide variety of different places. Mm. You know, I have a, I'm in analysis, so I have a therapist. I'm in a men's group. Mm. <laughs> I have a supervisor. I speak mm. to people on this podcast, you know, I'm anything but quiet. Mm. So I think that we really have to keep those two words together, quiet desperation, because mm. we're all going to be desperate but there is a particular element that keeps us quiet. And I think it's actually men who are particularly quiet. Why do you think men find it difficult to speak up? Different reasons. I think a big one, a big reason for me, uh, which rings for me and the clients I've worked with, is something which um, a brilliant American man, Dr. William Pollock, called the boy code. And it's the kind of set of shoulds and oughts we encounter as boys when we're about to make the move into, into adulthood around teenage years. And we get these rules, these edicts, if you like, not from teachers or from parents, perhaps, but from our mates, from role models, from... The know, bigger culture. Bigger culture. A classic thing, boys don't cry. You've got to be tough. You've got to not show fear, not show emotion. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. All this a classic kind of masculinity. And you've got to do it all on your own. You can't ask for help, which is yeah, possibly and, the worst part of all of this. And that, that's the biggest, the biggest um, rule in the boy code is you don't talk about the boy code. And so what tends to happen is that we all pretend to varying degrees that we're doing okay with that. Yeah, we're measuring up. We're kind of quite cool. We're quite strong. We're, we're quite good with women. We're, we're doing very well with women. Thank you very much. Feel no fear. Feel no anxiety. No, mate, everything is great. And if somebody shows a crack, then everybody laughs, not necessarily in a cruel kind of way, but just to distance themselves from all of that. And I think more than laugh, you know, it's also called the convict code. So I've done some, doing some work in the past in prisons and speaking to men who say, yeah, we recognise this really, really well and we can't break it because we will be hurt, literally hurt or even killed. If we show that kind of weakness, we cannot afford to. And we feel it, but we cannot afford to show it. Because it's literally physically life-threatening, potentially. And let's look at this in the greater world, because I think there's a woman's code and there's a society's code too. Yeah. 
absolutely. And I think each family has an individual code of rules as yeah. well. Yeah. So I think as we go through this, I'm inviting everybody to to think about the messages of um, that women are given, to think about the messages from your own particular family. I often say on this podcast, you know, the message from my family was feelings get in the way, don't speak about them. Mm. And as I always also say, what a surprise, I became a therapist and run a podcast, which is all about talking about feelings. But mm. You need to be aware of all these messages if you're going to get out of quiet desperation. Mm -hmm. So if you have recognized the idea of quiet desperation and the title of this podcast, for me, that is something that is really positive because once you've actually admitted to quiet desperation, you can actually do something about it. Yeah. Because if you just say, well, this is the way of the world, that sort of uh, quiet resignation, that is, as Thoreau says, confirmed resignation and things don't have to stay the same. Mm. So I think the first thing we've got to do is understand why people get to the position of quiet desperation. And I've come up with three things. And the first one is that they're lost. Mm -hmm. And let's look at your work and how people get lost. And one of the central ideas that you have is that uh, men are lost because they've not been through a rite of passage. Explain to me, what is a rite of passage? Well, it's a big term. I mean, in Indigenous cultures, it would be traditionally for a young man or young woman to mark that passing from childhood to adulthood and support it. So the young man, I'll speak about young young men, this is my experience, classically experiences... um, a separation from the family, from the mother, and endure, uh, uh, a, a trial and a return. Those are the classic archetypal positions on a rite, a rite of passage. So they actually, in these rites of passage, actually kidnap the boy from his mother's hearth because the idea is that it's nice and warm and comfortable. You're getting three meals a day and your mum thinks you're wonderful. Why would you ever leave? Yeah. And so in the night, the elders of the tribe come and kidnap you and take you into the woods. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens when you get into the woods? I've never actually been there as such, but um, so I'm told, and so I've learned from my bones, is that there's a kind of, I think Robert Bly speaks very well about it, about there's a kind of male feeling that goes on. So the young man is taught in various ways that he can turn to other men to be fed. He hasn't got to stay in the realm of the mother. He can move towards adult malehood and he will find there a welcome and food and shelter. And he's taught those in various ways through story, through ritual, through endurance, through time in nature, through vision quest. Vision quest. What's a vision quest? It's a Native American term, I believe, where, again, a young man or woman or person may, under instruction from the shaman or priest or counsellor, spend some time in nature, maybe a day, two days, a week, two weeks, three weeks, just being, maybe praying, maybe meditating, maybe being what is. And ideally, the, the hope is, the expectation is we find something deeper something more meaningful, something less desperate, something um, less grey inside ourselves. So we, we, we get away from the kind of day-to-days, the nine-to-fives. So tell me about your experience when you went off and actually went through a rite of passage that somebody was doing as, that you weren't, I'm not suggesting you were actually kidnapped, but no. you, you voluntarily went on one of these. What happens? 
Can you remember your, yeah, your first well. experience? I can very well. My first experience of an organised rites of passage, yeah, was immediately kind of after the realisation that I was getting older and the realisation that um, uh, my goal was buried under a load of shame and guilt and grief and all sorts of things. So and what what kind of shame and guilt? Shame of just not being any good, not being fundamentally, not being successful, not being much good as a man, not being much use to the world. I, I, I went back into therapy reluctantly. I thought I'd give it one more chance. I worked with a man for the first time. And I said that at the time, I feel like inside I feel like a bit of useless, burnt out rope. That's, that's, the, that's what I'm like. That's, what, that's my, my essence at the moment. He was involved with the Rites of Passage organisation and he said, you could maybe do with this, this could help you. I knew some of the guys that were involved as well from the previous training we'd done. So I wasn't a complete stranger. But it basically involves arriving in a place in North Wales, a very beautiful purpose-built retreat centre with about 20 other men and going through various exercises, activities, group work, all kinds of stuff, body work, uh, ritual work. And through that process over five, six, seven days, each man gets crafted for himself for a particular ritual, which marks where, where he is, opens the door to where he needs to go next and shows him the challenge in front of him. What did you craft for yourself then? Partly that's, that's, that's private, that is confidential. Um, but what it was for me was an, an enormous, basically I can say it's, it was an, an enormous um, exercise around trust. And I didn't know, but, but I, because of how I'd been, I came pretty close to being thrown off the event, apparently. <laughs> but my, my therapist was arguing my, in my favour and saying he needs to be here, otherwise he might die. Right. So I was in my a pretty desperate place. I was drinking a lot, I was smoking a lot, I was doing all sorts of stuff. So there was a lot of anger in you as, as well? Just a bit, just a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but what that, I found there was, was profoundly nurturing. I, th- I remember thinking, this is a bit like therapy, but it's not quite therapy. This is something else. This has got an edge to it. This has got something I can get a hold of. And it will bite and bite back and meet me. So um, I could be angry there and it was okay to be really flipping angry. And how was it nurturing? Because I felt the kind of um, big brushstroke again when men get rid of some of their armour, some of our coverings, some of our defences, there's a profound, for me, a profound kind of feeling. Um, it's really hard to put into words. It's a really hearty way of being told, yeah, you're all right, son. You're okay. And it's not really verbalised. It's a sense. It's a kind of felt bodily sense. that, And that comes via kind of a bit of, profundity a bit of profanity as well a bit of sacredness a bit of zaniness a whole these things aren't exclusive to men but this is what i found for the first time in a group of men and the fact that 20 men can be together and not kill each other was pretty good and not compete with each other as and well not compete with each other because that's the great problem put a group of men together and they'll try and work out who is the top dog yeah and, and that, that, that happened it happened to retire and the facilitator even encouraged that to happen that process Draw awareness to it. What are we doing here? Notice what you're doing. You know, Michael Mead, the great men's writer, says, because of our histories, when two men meet, something instantaneously happens in the bodies. So a question goes through our bodies. Is someone going to die? Is it going to be me? It's like that, really quick. And we, we get a lot of information in that second. And so we're kind of hardwired with that. And so we, we get a chance to drop that. 
to unpick it gently and let it go a little bit, let it relax a little bit. And then the kind of good stuff starts to flow. And it's not all pretty. By any means, not pretty sometimes. Somehow I have the idea of it being Wales in a mountain. What kind of man came back down the mountain? Uh, one who could grieve for me. One who touched what grief meant. What sh- I, I, I touched gr- grief and shame. I began to understand my own shame. And I'd found something of value. Going through the ritual I went through, with what it involved for me, the trust it involved me giving, gave me a piece of gold. And what did you do with the gold? I kind of threw my energy into the men's work. I thought, this is so flipping good. I need, this is where I need to be. This is where I feel at home. So I attended some more groups. I volunteered to be an assistant in the kitchen. I worked my way through the ranks, so to speak, and became a, a facilitator um, a few years later and found my path, basically. Because one of the classic things that happens in a rite of passage is the elders of the tribe tell the young men or the young women the myths and the rules of how the society works. Mm -hmm. And so the central idea of rites of passage is one of the reasons we're lost is twofold. One, we actually haven't crossed over properly from being a boy to a man. Yeah. And we don't actually know the myths of our society, the true ones. Without actually being told them by somebody older and wiser, we sort of get them from pop culture, effectively. And the messages in our society are the things that count are success, money, and status. Mm -hmm. But those aren't really the important things, are they? No, not really. Um, they're very attractive things, but when it comes down to it, they go. No. Some people will find that hard to believe. So it's, it's, it's incredibly important. Of course it is. But um, if the soul isn't intact underneath that, if our dreams aren't intact, if our sense of well-being is not intact, then all the gold, all the status in the world is not going to help. So make it worse, in fact. As somebody who I think probably qualifies as an elder of the tribe now, what do you tell men are the important myths? My big thing at the moment, well, it has been for a long time, it is around grief. And that men should cry, men should learn to grieve, and men should be supported. And we should learn as a society to grieve. I'm not talking about mourning for a person. I'm talking about for the fact that, um, you know, there's a great writer called Francis Wellows who's done a lot about grief. He says things like, everything we love, we must lose. Everything we love, we must lose. That's a fact. That's a life fact. And we need to kind of hold that. Not to descend into depression and doom and gloom, quite the opposite, really. But to grieve that fact and thereby give our hearts a space, a space to open. And when we grieve, we can touch praise and we get hold of the praise of the world, so to speak. And, and what I'm almost hearing you saying is unless you can grieve, you can't reopen your heart. I think that's true. I think for, for me, it was true. You know, the, the, the edict, boys don't cry, it goes so deep, it goes so deep. And boys should, yeah, should, should cry, big should. We, we should grieve. And I had no idea what this meant. On, on my rights of passage event, um, two of the elders came to me and said, you need a grief ritual. I said, do, okay, do I? What, what the hell was that then? I had no concept of what a grief ritual might be or what grieving, no one had died recently. It wasn't about that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an antidote to kind of grandiosity and superficiality, I think, partly. So explain to us what grandiosity is. My take on it, it, it's a kind of overestimation of self in due to the fact that actually inside we are pretty down upon ourselves. So we compensate by 
lots of money, lots of cars, lots of kind of status, lots of kind of inflated self-worth. That's being a bit, a bit um, harsh, but that's, I think that's, that's true. It's pretty fragile as well. It's easily punctured. So we have to make ourselves bigger to try and hide the fact we feel really small. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So one of the reasons we lead lives of quiet desperation is because we're lost. And so let's think about what the solution to being lost is. And I think for me, it's about thinking about what are my values rather than the values of society pushes of, you know, success, money and status. Mm. And to actually think what are my values? That's quite a hard thing to do. How do you help people decide what are their values as opposed to the values they've actually been given by people? I would always tend to go via the body. My estimate from my training, from my experience, the body kind of knows, our bodies know us better than we know ourselves. The, the, the body remembers, it holds the key, and it holds our, that, that's where we'll find our own values by exploring our own bodies, our own body energies. So I have no understanding of what that might actually okay. mean. <laughs> okay, apologies. So my encounters with therapy were from basically from what's called body psychotherapy. So we're working with the brain, with the psyche, with the emotions, but, and with the bodily responses as well. Okay. My training was based a lot on the work of Wilhelm Reich, who's one of the pioneers of body psychotherapy. And very simply, a very simplified version is that we're encouraged to breathe more and breathe deeper. And Reich's notion, this, this working principle, was that we, as we encounter trauma, we tend to withdraw our energy from that part of the body and our breath. And so by one time we're about 25, 30 years old, we may be kind of quite locked up. So breathing more deeply, supported by a therapist, helps us to kind of open those, those chains a little bit and we let some stuff out. I mean, we, we, rem- we rem- remember things. So, for example, for me, in the early days of having therapy, I've not long since been away to India and come back from my call to adventure. In doing so, I'd left behind some friends which I'd forgotten about. And then we were very close and I just lost touch with them. And I didn't even think about them. We were a gang before I went away. Very early on in my, in my therapy sessions, I remembered and just started sobbing. I thought, oh my God, I miss those guys. And I had no conscious idea that I was missing that, that degree. Does that make sense? You get some, my body's telling me, man, you're, you're grieving. You're missing your friends. Integrate that into, into your reality. That's true. That's really true. My head says, no, I'm not. My guts and my heart says, yes, you are. And that informed my kind of my path, so to speak. So we're looking at three reasons why people might be in a place of quiet desperation. The first one is that they're getting lost. The second one is best illustrated by a story you tell, that we're feeding the wrong wolf. This is a North American native story, uh, the idea that we have two wolves. So tell me the story and, and explain how we can use it. So very briefly, there's, um, uh, I forget which, which nation it's from, but anyway, it's a Native American grandfather speaking to his grandson about life, which is already a very potent image. But the grandfather says, inside me, there are two wolves. One is good, he is love, he is beauty, he is truth, he is compassion. One is evil, he is war, he is violence, he is murder, he is rape, he is lies. Da, da, da. These two wolves are fighting inside me. And inside you, and inside everybody, the fight continues between these two wolves. And the grandson says, with big wide eyes, Grandfather, which wolf will win? To which the grandfather replies, 
the one that you feed, the one that you feed will win. And how do you use that story in your work? Uh, it works particularly well in projects for young people who are behaving abusively and for young people generally and for men who are behaving abusively because it gives a notion. I think it's a really powerful image, the grandfather teaching the grandson. That's a big hole for us in our society in the, in the West. We haven't got that kind of much of that kind of teaching going on. But men recognise it. We recognise it when we, when we see it and it, it speaks to our bones. And it gives us the, the notion, the idea that we have got some kind of choice in how we can regulate our behaviour, our mood, our whole being, we can choose which wolf we feed. And we can notice what happens when we feed the bad wolf or the good wolf, however that may be, how we, how we do that. How do we feed the bad wolf, first of all? So within the, in the domestic violence groups, for example, a man might come in and say, I really fed the bad wolf this week, guys. You know, I, I kind of, my partner went out for a drink with her friends and I... I let my head go and I started texting her. I texted her a hundred times in about half an hour and I was waiting up for her and I just, I was, I was all over the place. I lost it completely. He could have phoned a friend. He could have phoned his sponsor. He could have done, he said, no, to hell with that. I just went, went with my kind of bad wolf because I and, knew she was cheating on me. Da, 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 da. And the more space you give the wolf, in other words, the more food, the more you need to text, the more yeah. you need to stay yeah. up, the more angry yeah. you're going to be. Yeah, in a less extreme level, um, for me, feeding the bad wolf is I can think, well, it's half past 10, nearly 11 o'clock. I could do going to bed right now, but hey, I'll watch a bit more YouTube. I'll watch a few more episodes of whatever. It'll be okay. And it's half past one, and I'm in a bad shape for tomorrow morning. And how do we feed the good wolf? Thing, well, becoming aware of the wolves in the first place, checking in with our hearts, whatever works for you, meditation, exercise, yoga, therapy. Um, self-care self-care yeah paying attention to those voices which say you shouldn't self-care that they go this and just great awareness i think overall increasing awareness yeah i think when people say when you hear voices saying don't feed the good wolf it's probably the bad wolf yeah absolutely yeah. speaking yeah and i think what's important is underneath that to have a sense of compassion about our inquiry as well and i think what is really important is you know, what is the solution to this? And I think it is recognising the second wolf. We all have a, a second wolf. It might be workaholism. It might be anxiety. It might be the need to control. You know, what is your second wolf? And I think it's much better to be aware of the second wolf rather than pretend it isn't there. Absolutely. Most of our lives, we pretend that we're just the good wolf and the bad wolf has been banished to the woods. Or we project it onto somebody else or something else. That's a classic yeah. thing we do, which is very destructive. Yeah, we have a very good idea of the other persons, our partners, our mothers, our fathers, bad wolf, and we forget about our own. So that's the second idea. Actually, look at if you're feeling quiet desperation, it could be that the second wolf is getting a lot of feeding. Yeah. Now, the next one is this is, I'm going to be a bit poetic here. I'm sure that Simon will have no trouble with me going with poetry, but everybody else will have to be patient with me. So, the three, third reason we might have quiet desperation is we've refused the call to go in search of the Holy Grail. Now, I'm not talking about the chalice used in the Last Supper or something from the Da Vinci Code. 
but putting everything into a mythical language to understand the importance. So, Simon, you've already spoken very briefly about a call to go in search of something. So perhaps you can explain to us, what is the call? It's short for the call to adventure, which is a kind of, I think, an archetypal process for young, certainly for young men, for young people. Um, for me, it took the shape of, in my very early 20s, I was... I had quite a good job working for a big pharmaceutical company. I didn't quite like it, but it was a good job. It paid money. I had a relationship. I was kind of settling down a bit from being a rebellious sort of teenager. And I found myself looking in through an estate agent's window, thinking, hmm, hmm, mortgage, hmm, wedding, all that kind of stuff was around. Then another voice went, India, travel, excitement, women. Drugs. <laughs> Rock and roll. Rock and roll. And I thought, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where that other voice came from. I do know it, it's a voice I hear occasionally still, I trust implicitly. It was a good voice. It wasn't a bad voice, but it was a good, evolutionary, meaningful voice which spoke. So a call to adventure, and you went off to India. What did you discover in your call to adventure? Uh, well... Cliche, the world's a bigger place. I met a lot of really interesting people, really interesting ideas, really interesting philosophies, really alien cultures, difficult parts of myself, frightening times, remarkable times, times when the most most amazing, you know, I found myself on the way back in Pakistan with no money and no passport and I was completely in a mess and too... Australian guys said, come with us, we'll take you with us, come along, we'll share the money, we've got some money. And little things like that, acts of kindness, acts of extraordinariness, finding out about my own selfishness, my own stupidity, my own ignorance about the world, a whole bundle of stuff. Wow. Yeah. A lot of doors opened, a lot of doors opened. Still to this day, the most important thing I've ever done. What's the most important thing you've taken forward from that time? Funnily enough, the hardest thing was coming back. I couldn't fit back into where I'd been before. When I came back home, I couldn't find home. The chair didn't fit properly. My flat didn't fit. I couldn't. It was horrible. Home. I couldn't relate to the life I'd had. And that kind of started the kind of semi-conscious trying to get back home, which is a big metaphor in itself. Trying to find what was true for me now. And that led me again into therapy. Into, that, that prompted me to go into therapy, into all sorts of stuff. And I've called it, you've called it the search for home. I've called it the search for the Holy Grail. It's sort of the same thing, really, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I would say home in, in a bigger sense, not just the your house where you live, the home where you live on this earth, in your psyche, in yourself. Yeah, it's partly feeling, for me, when you say home, it means feeling comfortable in your own skin and yeah. being on the right path. And the reason I quite like the search for the Holy Grail as an image is it doesn't suggest you know what the path is when you set off on it, because who knows what the Holy Grail is and where you'll find it, but you are on the journey to find it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's what this podcast is about, is about the Holy Grail, finding Mm -hmm. your own personal meaning for what makes your life have purpose. So it could be 
that you're living a life of quiet desperation because you have actually refused some calls to adventure. Yeah. So how do we recognize a call to adventure, do you think? It's a very good question. I mean, as I say, for me, it was kind of almost like a voice inside of my head saying, India, go to India. You might recognize it as a kind of, I know a lot of people I've worked with, a lot of men I've worked with, a lot of people I've worked with who got it all, have everything in terms of the job, the partner, the house, the kids, the career, the status. And one morning they wake up and it's kind of turned to dust, not literally, but in terms of meaning. Now at that point, you go and see a doctor and get some antidepressants or you think, hang on, what's happening here? Can you trust that call? That's a good question. Can you trust the call? Do you have a choice? Um, It can be as subtle as that. It can be a dream. It can be a, a, a relationship breakdown. It can be a nervous breakdown. And the place to actually start the uh, journey might not necessarily be the solution. So, you know, actually going away for a weekend retreat on somewhere, you know, booking a course on uh, shamanic journeys or some something weird or walking the Camino to Santiago yeah. Yeah. or just deciding you're going to listen to a lot of podcasts like this one. The important thing is you actually set out on the journey rather than just stay at home. Because if you stay at home, and I don't mean this literally, that you have to leave your house. What I mean is you have to leave that stuckness, that quiet desperation. Yeah, Uh, And almost it ultimately doesn't really matter if you turn the wrong way at your gate. The important thing is you're actually psychologically on the journey. That's right. Yeah. Rilke, the poet, wrote a fantastic poem called Sometimes a Man Stands Up During Supper about this very thing. And the first two lines are, sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east. Another man stays in his own home, stays there with the dirty glasses and dishes. So his children have to go far out into the world towards a church that he forgot. That's a great thing about not taking up the call to adventure. And you, you might find yourself thrust upon it. So a lot of the men who came to the domestic violence groups, the ones who stayed the course, managed to change their behaviours, but also had a real thirst to go deeper now, to go into some deeper work and to enter that journey. They, they, they got a taste of home under all the, all, all the abuse, the gubbins, the uh, stuff. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the new things on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting everybody to write and tell us about a dilemma that they're currently facing or a problem they've got. Hopefully, we will give you some thoughts that will help you get unstuck and might even provide some ways forward, some signposts. If you're interested, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com. If you go to the podcast section, come right to the very end of the page, you will find a form where you can send these in. And this was sent to us by a man. How do I deal with the stuff from my childhood when I don't really know what it is? I have all sorts of blanks with hardly any memories before I was about 10 or 11. I didn't think that was unusual until I had some counselling and my counsellor was surprised about how little I could remember. 
she asked me to think about why that might be. So I came up with two possibilities. Little worth remembering happened or things happened that I would rather forget. Considering I started counselling because I'm generally anxious, can lose my temper and lash out at people, and I worry that everyone will leave me, with good reason because that's been my experience, certainly with lovers, it would make sense that I have old pain, trauma or whatever. However, there is nothing I can put my finger on. My dad did leave when I was about nine or ten months old, but obviously I don't remember that beyond a couple of meetings as a teenager and a Christmas card probably 15 years ago. I've had no more contact. Where do I start? How can I know what happened? I don't want to make stuff up. My mum says I had a normal childhood just like everybody else. Should I just focus on how I feel today and stop chasing ghosts? So, Simon, what were your thoughts when you read this letter? My first thought was that I'd want to be very, very careful, gentle with this person. And I know we're speaking about them in their absence, so forgive me if, I'm, if that sounds misplaced. But um, I'm wondering about when the dad left, that age 10, 12 months, and being aware that even though at that age we may not, well, we can't consciously process that kind of information, at some level our bodies know what's happening. And I would encourage the person gently, the man gently to, if his counsellor if his counsellor can work in a body kind of centred way, or to explore body psychotherapy himself, because the, the, the body can tell us more than the head can most of the time, and it might give him some clues as to what, if it is just chasing ghosts, or if, if there is a meaning meaningful link to the to the present needing to be healed. And I would suggest again very gently that if. Um, he's experiencing losing it a lot of the time, kicking off, and and a sense of dread at being left. There's quite there's a lot there, which is very tender. We, I can't give a kind of you should do this, obviously. Da, 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 no, we, we can't do that, but just in a, in, a, in the way we approach ourselves and our clients in that way, because I think we can see the wounds, mm. and if you can see the wounds, in a sense, actually, what caused the wounds is. Sec- is of secondary importance. What sure. actually is important is actually seeing the wounds and being prepared to to be kind to them, to help the heal them. Whereas I think we have a tendency to say, "Oh, this is a." I'm going to make a slight joke. You know, this is an old war wound. You know, forget about it, sort of mm-hmm. kind of thing, and mm-hmm. sort of live with it. So the body grows round the pain rather than actually deals with it. Yeah. So do you think it's actually worth trying to recover some of these these memories to talk to people who would have been around at this, this period? Yeah, and if you look at the work of um, a man called Dr. Gabor Mate, and if you come across him, there's some fantastic stuff around childhood trauma, and um, where he says it may not be immediately visible what happened to us, and that isn't the trauma. The trauma is what didn't happen, in a sense, what we didn't get. And it's not about blaming people around us or blaming our parents for leaving or anything like that. It's kind of gently inquiring as to what was happening, what 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 did happen, what did I feel? And if there are people around who can witness that, yeah, great. And I think the way you approach your mother, who is obviously going to be the prime witness, is really important. If you say, I've got all these problems, you know, why did this, you know, that she's going to hear this as you're looking for ways to blame her. Mm. But actually, if you just approach it with curiosity, you know, what was it like for you when my father left? You know, what was going on for you? How did you, who got, who gave you support? So, you know, you're actually asking in a curious way 
to find out what it was like for her. And I think she'll probably tell you that it was incredibly painful and very difficult. And you will get a sense of what was actually then through her going on for you at that period. You know, if you're lucky enough to have grandparents alive, ask them. If your mother has special close friends, you could ask them about this period. You know, what do you remember about my childhood? You know, what kind of kid was I? And everybody's got stories. It doesn't necessarily mean that this witness is the right witness, but it's going to give you a little bit more information. You're going to piece this together. And it's amazing how many people haven't actually asked their parents very much about their lives. You know, what was your life? What was your childhood like? You know, that's a great question to ask your parents because that's going to give you all sorts of other information. You know, be really curious, work out the sort of biography of your parents. Um, and that was just, sorry to interrupt, your, your ancestors as a, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Very fruitful exploration can be had there, again, via divination or just via inquiry or looking at a photograph or a diary or a journal or talking to surviving parents. Um, yeah, I mean, tracing your family ancestors, you know, actually finding out who they were, what did they yeah. do, that is incredibly interesting so that you can actually build up quite a picture if you do it in a, a curious kind of way. Any any books or anything else like that that you would um, recommend? I would say the work of, uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's got loads of stuff online, quite a few books, and very big on compassion. That's his big cornerstone, compassionate inquiry. Good place to start. Very human, very funny guy, very, very um, learned. Yeah, he's on my list of people to try and uh, get on this podcast. He said... Oh, great. Um, he said that when I've got, I don't know how many more extra listeners, he will come and talk to us. So effectively, tell your friends to listen to this podcast and we'll, he'll come and talk to us. Mm-hmm. I would also, but I'd also caution as such, you may, in your explorations, uncover a few skeletons as well, uncover the family story, which may you may come up against. So be supported in, in, if you can be. It hasn't got to be lonely work. Well, you do have your therapist. She yeah. will help. She will help you right. yeah. actually make sense of this kind of material. Yeah. So when you say, you know, I found out that uh, my mother's father disappeared when she was young for you know ten years and then came back again, you know, this is all useful information to tell her, and she can help you think through what the impact might be like of of yeah. that and how that might actually contribute to ghosts that have been passed on to you as well. So, you know, use this. And I think um, I love that word compassion. Be compassionate to your mother, be compassionate to your father, be compassionate to yourself, because they all have histories that they're dealing with as, as well, and they all have their own wounds. Thank you very much for sharing that letter. And Simon, thank you very much for being my witness on the meaningful life. Um, Thank you for inviting me. And um, I have to turn the tables on you and ask you what makes your life meaningful. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've become a born again um, lockdown gardener. So I get a tremendous amount of, I mean, these days, the meaning from just gardening, you know, shifting a ton of soil yesterday, a ton of compost. Mm-hmm. But deeper than that, um, small things, uh, poetry, walking on a Northumberland beach, the particular shade of a coot's wing, I don't know, um, yeah. 
some moments in men's circles and other circles when we touch something deeper and more profound just briefly and um, we get a taste of that and an awareness that I'm getting on I've turned 60 and life is beautiful and getting shorter and I'm 62 welcome to the decade <laughs> <laughs> not quite used to it yet Andrew but I'm getting to, I'm getting to learn to wear it yeah it's people talk to you about your retirement planning and things like that yeah it's, I know it's a little strange, but um, it is a wonderful adventure, the 60s, I think. And I've, I'm finding meaning in kind of how I'm having to adjust my self-perception around that number 60 as well. It's kind of, and again, a lot of support from male colleagues, from men's group, from my partner. Yeah, it's a fruitful and slower inquiry than before, but that's, 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 that's okay. I think slower inquiries are good inquiries. That's the message that I get over and over again on this podcast. Actually, slowing it down actually often reveals some of the gold. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, this is where we leave the conversation for most people. But if you become a member of our supporters circle, then you get to hear the rest of the conversation. We're going to look back at this um, conversation, Simon and I, and see what we've learned from it. And I'm going to ask Simon three things he knows deep down to be true. And if you'd like to become a a supporter and a special friend of the podcast, here come the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.